Well, good morning again. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here. It's good to, to be with you this morning. Just grateful to be able to worship uh, with you today. Um, you know, before we jump into our sermon today, I just wanted to mention two things. First, um, as you think about gathering with the church week in and week out, um, our worship leaders do a great job of just thinking through, praying through what songs to sing on a Sunday as it relates to what's going to be preached and what we're going through. And I think you'll see just as an example today that the songs we sang already are really preparing our hearts for what the word is going to be today from from God's word. The sermon is going to be today from God's word. So thank you to all of our worship leaders who spend a lot of time and uh, energy and effort uh, week in and week out preparing for our gathering, which is all the more reason to prepare yourself as you come and gather week in and week out and to be here on time, knowing that every aspect of our service is geared towards encouraging you, teaching you, challenging you uh, as it, as it um, is helpful for us in the midst of, as Rob said, a world full of distractions. So that's the first thing. Second thing I wanted to mention is uh, more of an announcement. Uh, I shared this at our member meeting a couple of months ago, uh, but in mid, starting in mid-June, the church is graciously allowing me to take a sabbatical. And so I'm going to be uh, out for about three months, uh, mid-June to mid-September. Uh, and it's going to be a time just for my family and I to uh, pull back a little bit from active ministry, just to rest and be refreshed and recharged uh, with the plan of, of coming back and re-engaging and just jumping back into uh, what God has for us as we seek to serve Jesus' church. So we're going to be in the area for the most part. We're going to travel a little bit here and there, go to a couple of our partner churches in the area as well. Uh, and so just wanted to let you know that uh, during the summer, we'll finish up our Mark sermon series uh, and we'll have mostly um, guys here at our church already uh, filling the pulpit during that time. So if you have questions about that, we'll talk a little bit more about it at the member meeting this afternoon, or feel free to ask questions at the member meeting this afternoon if you're curious about sabbaticals and all that kind of fun stuff. But I just want to say thank you to you guys as our church, our members, for allowing me the opportunity to do that. It's because of your faithfulness and your generosity that we're able to do things like take sabbaticals. So thank you. Love you too. All right, I'm going to invite Brian up now. He's going to read our sermon text for today out of Mark chapter 9. Good morning. Mark chapter 9. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house with, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down, and he called to the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able, to be able soon afterwards to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, Whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. 
Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Oh God, you are a holy, good, just, merciful, loving God. And we praise you. God, we thank you that we don't have to wonder who you are. You've given us your word. You've revealed yourself to us in it. And God, now as we open it up, we pray by the work of your spirit that you'd give us ears to hear and eyes to see today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Maybe when you were growing up, you tried to convince your mom to let you go do something with some of your friends. And your line maybe to your mom was something like, hey, everybody is doing this. To which she might have replied something along the lines of, well, if everyone jumped off a cliff, would you do that as well? Now, that's kind of a silly hyperbolic thing to say, but your mom, who's trying to look out for your best interest, is highlighting what's called the bandwagon fallacy. This idea that just because a lot of people are doing something doesn't necessarily mean that it's right or true. Sometimes that's really obvious. For instance, jumping off a cliff would obviously not be wise or prudent no matter how many people are doing it. But other aspects of life are not always so obvious as what we should do when it comes to which way we should go or how we should think or how we should live. So what do we do in those moments as we seek to live life in this world? As we come to our text today, In our Follow Me sermon series in the Gospel of Mark, we see the disciples of Jesus, his closest followers, they're having a hard time with this exact thing. They find themselves listening to Jesus, learning from him, but also in the midst of the world. And they're listening to him, trying to follow him in the ways of Jesus, but are also tempted to be caught up in the ways of the world. But Jesus, once again, in his kindness, takes time He takes time to instruct them and to teach them, and by extension, teach us and instruct us. And as we'll see, how you and I live live life in this life, in this world, doesn't just have temporal implications, but eternal ones. So this isn't just a matter of preference. It's a matter of life and death. What we're going to see in this text highlights what Jesus teaches in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. He says, enter by the narrow gate. For the, way, the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. 
For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. In other words, just because a lot of people are living a certain way or thinking a certain way doesn't mean that it's right or good, and just because something is hard doesn't mean it is wrong or not worth it. So in a world of distractions with a plethora of inputs on how you should live your life, which way do you go? Which way do we go? Well, thankfully, Jesus doesn't leave us to figure it out on our own. He has shown us by his own life and instructed us through his words. He's taught us the way that leads to life. He's taught us the way of the king. And what we'll see today is that the way of the king is countercultural to the way of the world. See, the world puts self at the center, that you're the most important person there is. But the result of that is that it will lead to death. But the way of the king, the way of the king puts Christ at the center, and that will lead to life. And so my hope today, whether you're already a follower of Jesus or not, is that we would all be encouraged to seek by grace to walk in the way of the king, putting Jesus at the center of our lives. So let's dive into Mark chapter 9, and may God bless the preaching of his word. We're finishing up Mark chapter 9 today, and there's been a whole lot of things that have taken place in this section of Mark. In the first part, we see with Peter, James, and John looking on, Jesus is transfigured. He's transformed up on a mountain, and we get a peek at his radiant glory as it's shining forth. And at the same time, he's joined by Moses and Elijah. Now, if that's not amazing in and of itself, at the same time, right after that, we hear the voice of the Father, and he says to the disciples, he says to us, this is my son, listen to him, listen to Jesus. Right after that, Jesus and the three disciples come back down the mountain, back to reality, and they find the other disciples arguing with the scribes about something, and in the midst of that, we see this desperate father, this desperate dad who's looking for Jesus for help for himself and his son, and he honestly declares, I believe, help my unbelief. And to end that section, in verses 30 through 32, Mark gives us a transitional paragraph that advances the story But it also grounds all of the hope and all of the help that you and I can find in Jesus in his pending death and resurrection. And it's in light of that reality that Jesus has announced this now to his disciples for the second time that we come to the scene we have today. Where Jesus, there's no crowd around, it's just him and these disciples and he's seeking to teach them more about his kingdom. Now in this text, there's a lot going on. A whole lot of things are happening. A whole lot of things are said. And at first glance, it can seem like they're kind of loosely linked together. Like what's actually tying all of this together? In some ways, it's just a linking of common words and common themes, almost like word association. Like, oh yeah, that reminds me of this, which reminds me of this. And there's some debate as to whether this all happened at one time in one sitting where Jesus is teaching the disciples or if Mark editorially kind of brought different scenes together in this moment. But either way, this is all from Jesus. He's teaching us here. He's teaching his disciples. He's showing us the way of the king, the way that leads to life. The first thing that we see is that the way of the king is one of humility, not pride. Look at verse 33. Verse 33, it says, And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? Capernaum is kind of like a home base for Jesus and his disciples. It's a familiar place, a place of rest, a place to be recharged. We know Peter has a house there. 
And that might be where they're spending time, where, they're take, where all this is taking place. Essentially, think about this. It's like they're having community group together. Right? They're sitting in somebody's living room, maybe Peter's, and they're talking about life. They're talking about Jesus and his teaching. And it's here in this place that Jesus asks this question, though he seems to already know the answer. What were you discussing on the way? So what do the disciples say? How do they answer Jesus? Well, they don't. They're embarrassed. But Mark tells us what they're talking about. Verse 34, but they kept silent for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. The disciples are traveling to Capernaum, but ultimately they're headed south to Jerusalem, the place Jesus says he'll be arrested, he'll be killed, and he will rise again. But right here in this moment, we see once again, the disciples still don't quite get it. They still don't quite understand what's about to happen. They don't get that this journey is not on the way to exaltation, it's on the way to humiliation. That suffering will precede glory. See, right now they're focused on themselves. They're thinking, we're rolling into Jerusalem, here we go, kingdom's about to get going here, Jesus on the throne, and we're right there with them, we're his entourage. They're thinking about prestige, they're thinking about power, they're thinking about position, they're thinking about their own personal greatness, not Jesus and his greatness. So Jesus takes this opportunity to teach them. He sits down, it says in verse 35, he assumes the common position of a teacher in that day because class is in session for the disciples and for us. And what he says here is so upside down, not only for the first century world, but also for the 21st century world. And he says to them, verse 35, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Now, at first, this doesn't seem to make any sense. If you want to be first, you can't be last. Right? Like those, those two things don't work together. But the key here is the very last phrase. He says, if you want to be first, if you want to be great, you have to be the servant of all. In other words, there's no one in your life that's not deserving of your willingness to serve him or her. This is so opposite from what the world would think and say, especially when it comes to success and greatness. The way to get ahead in life is to put self first, not others. And when you're ahead in life, you're granted the right to keep putting yourself before others. It's almost expected. People should be serving you, not the other way around, if you're at the top of the food chain. See, at its core, though, this is a form of pride. Pride puts self at the center, whether that's self-importance or self-reliance or self-focus. And pride distorts our view of God, putting us on equal plane with him, maybe even above him. It distorts our view of others, making ourselves look better or think better or more highly than, other, than we look at other people. It distorts our view of self. It's a me-first mentality where we see everyone, even God, playing the background in our lives. But the way of the king, the way of the king is the opposite of that. See, in God's kingdom, people who are actually great don't put their, other, their needs above others, but put others' needs above their own. In other words, they're not proud, they're humble. Instead of thinking only or mainly about self, humility is thinking about yourself less. See, Jesus doesn't say greatness is wrong. That's not the issue here. What's wrong here is the path to get to it. That's what matters. That's what's countercultural about the way of the king. So in order to help them understand this, he gives them an illustration. It says he brings a child. Maybe it's 
a child that lives in the house or something. We don't know who this child is, but he puts this child in front of them. And then we see verse 37, he says to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. And we have to understand the cultural context of what's going on here. Kids in the first century weren't thought of as they are in American culture today, where kids are often the focal point of a family. You know, in the first century, children were often thought of as less than, unimportant, better, definitely not to be seen or heard. But that's the way of the world. Then, not just for kids, but anyone who was lowly in their estimations, maybe due to things like socioeconomics or ethnicity or gender or profession, kids are just one group that was often pushed to the sides or to the background in favor of those who we thought or think might offer us more. And the reality is we still see people marginalized today in our world for some of the same reasons. And what Jesus does here would be like if I was in a room full of important people, let's say powerful people who have a lot of power or a lot of resources who are thought of as a big deal, who think of themselves as a big deal. And I bring my son, Luke, who's three years old into the room and I say, guys, you got it all wrong. It's not you, it's him that's the big deal. So in a cultural context of strict social distinction, what Jesus says here, what he does here, would have been shockingly countercultural even for the disciples. You're getting it all backwards, guys. You're getting this all wrong. To receive someone like this in Jesus' name is to receive him or her like Jesus would receive him or her, with care, with compassion, with kindness. Now, he'll bring this idea of being a servant up again in chapter 10. We'll look at this in a few weeks. But what we can take away from this moment is that Jesus is trying to help the disciples see that the way they're thinking about themselves isn't the way of the king, but the way of the world around them. He's calling them to live differently. He wants the disciples to see, he wants us to see that the kingdom of God is not about power dynamics or hierarchies. It's not about status or position. It's about loving God and loving others more than we love ourselves. It's about seeing all people equally as image bearers of God and treating all people with dignity and care because of that reality. See, the way of the king then is not to pridefully elevate self, but in humility to seek to welcome those who maybe society and culture would deem irrelevant or unworthy or unimportant of recognition, to do so with no hint of partiality. And a great way to actually put that into practice is to serve other people by placing their needs above your own. Jesus himself will be the ultimate example of humble service. He's just told them what lies ahead, that he'll be killed, that he'll rise again, and this is so upside down from what they expected. Now, that's not how we get to victory. That's not how we win. But that's exactly what they need. It's exactly what you and I need too. The reality is all of us can struggle with pride. All of us can struggle with self-importance. I know I can. I can think, man, I am better than somebody else. I deserve more recognition than somebody else. I think I'm fine on my own. Where might you be tempted to think like the disciples? Where are there moments in your life where you might think more highly of yourself than you ought to? But see, the good news of 
Jesus going to the cross isn't just that he's an example of humility for us. No, as Jesus goes to the cross dying in our place, he goes as a substitute. He stands in your place where you should bear the weight of your own pride and self-interest and self-importance. Jesus goes in your place to die for you, to pay the penalty for all of your self-focused pride, all of my self-focused pride. And if you place your faith in him, he'll redeem you out of all of it. And he'll put you on the path that leads to life where he is at the center. See, what Jesus will accomplish for the disciples, what he has accomplished for us, isn't to make you prominent, but to reconcile you to God. It isn't to raise your status, it's to raise you from death to life. It isn't to elevate your position in this world, it's to adopt you into his family. It isn't to make you more self-sufficient, it's to transfer you from the kingdom of darkness where you are enslaved to sin into the kingdom of the sun where you're set free. That's the way of the king, a life that's marked by humility, not pride. Now, Jesus continues to teach the disciples on the way of the king as John brings up a question. Again, we don't know if this is happening right in this moment or Mark's bringing all these things together here, but he asks this question, and in his answer, Jesus' answer, we learn that the way of the king is also one of charity, not criticism. Look at verse 38. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Notice what John says here. He and the other disciples see another person. He's casting out demons in Jesus' name. Now, I think generally everybody would be like, that's a good thing. But remember what we looked at last week. Some of the disciples were just not able to do that. So they see someone doing it. They say, "We, we had to try to stop him. That's curious in and of itself. But notice what he says. We tried to stop him. Why? Because he was not following us. He doesn't say he wasn't following you, Jesus. He wasn't following us. It's another display of self-importance. John seems to think that the 12 disciples are the only show in town. They're the only ones who can do the works of God. And this leads him to be critical of another follower of Jesus. Now, criticism in and of itself is not a bad thing. Right? We can learn from healthy, loving critique in our workplace, in our, uh, our marriages, in our relationships with friends, and, and even in the church. We can be criticized in a helpful way so that we can grow. But when criticism is misguided, when criticism is motivated by a focus on self, where we seek to put someone down through our critique so we can elevate ourselves, it can be dangerous. See, John is judging this person's motives. He's judging his heart. He sees him as suspect, not because he's doing something against Jesus and his kingdom, but because he isn't a part of John's group. Once again, self is at the center instead of Christ. Jesus had other disciples. It wasn't just these 12. He had other followers. In Luke chapter 10, we see Jesus sends out not just 12 disciples, but 72 disciples to preach the gospel of the kingdom, to heal people. So it isn't out of the realm of possibility at all that someone else outside of this 12 could do this kind of work. But John seems to miss this. And so Jesus responds to him, verses 38, or sorry, excuse me, 39 through 40. He says, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. 
For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. What's Jesus saying here? He's trying to point John and the other disciples to focus on what they're being called to do and to leave the rest up to God. It's to see the advancement of the kingdom as more important than personal ambition. He doesn't want them to be quick to criticize other followers of Christ just because they don't belong to their group. So instead of criticism, the way of the king would have us be charitable towards others, others who are following Jesus, others who are doing the work of ministry, as big or small, even as giving a cup of water to someone in the name of Christ who knows Christ, no matter if it's a little bit different than the way you would do it, or if somebody thinks a little bit differently the way you think. Maybe they're not a part of your group. Or part of your tribe. I think part of what Jesus is doing here is opposing this idea of tribalism or cliques that are way more focused on personal agendas and group identity rather than the greater purposes of the kingdom of God. Now we could look at this and we could be critical of the disciples. <laughs> but I wonder if we're honest with ourselves that we also are often, maybe, too quick to critique too quick to criticize other Christians simply because they're doing something differently, not because they're necessarily doing something wrong. This happens especially when they aren't a part of our group, whatever that might be, or our family, or our church, or our tribe, or, or maybe just because it doesn't mesh with our preferences. But when we remember that you and I weren't just different than God, working on the same or towards the same goal, when we remember we were actually enemies of God, seeking to steal his glory, yet by grace he reconciled us to himself through the shed blood of Jesus. When we remember that, we too can show charity and grace towards others just as God has shown it to us, lavished it on us. See, because of what Christ has done, the dividing wall of hostility has been torn down. We can have good relationships with other people who think different, who look different, who are different than us when Christ is at the center instead of self being at the center. So now we can walk in the way of the king alongside of all of those, showing them charity instead of criticism. Now, in this last section, Jesus teaches on a third aspect of the way of the king. The third aspect that we see is that the way of the king is one of discipline, not compromise. Look at verse 42. It says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Now, when he says little ones here, we could think back to the child that he put in their midst, but this is a broader reference here. The little ones here are about followers of Jesus who are young in their faith or weak in their faith, other brothers and sisters in Christ. And his point is, anyone who would lead him or her astray, either into unbelief or sin, it would be better for him or her to drown than to keep doing that. I mean, those are strong words. Those are serious words that show us something. They show us that Jesus takes our influence on others seriously. But this section isn't just a warning about not leading others astray. Jesus also wants us to be on guard so that we're not led astray ourselves by the deceitfulness of sin. And so he gives in these next few verses a, a long kind of list, a picture of the seriousness of it. Verse 43, he says, and if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled 
than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. So what's going on here? Again, we have strong words here. Jesus is now talking about cutting off body parts, tearing out eyeballs, and hell. All right. What's he talking about? Well, first off, he's using hyperbolic language. He's using graphic language here. And I think it starts to round out this whole section here to help us see the seriousness of following Jesus versus the way of the world. He's helping us to see the seriousness of where sin, what sin is and where it leads. See, in a world full of temptation, you and I, even if we're followers of Christ, we can be deceived to think that we could compromise just a little bit here, just a little bit there, maybe at work, Maybe at home, maybe with our finances or our resources or what we watch or what we take into our our, our heads and our hearts. And it isn't that big of a deal because it's just a little bit. But Jesus wants to understand that when we start to go down that road, the road we're walking down is the wide way. The wide way that leads not to life but to destruction, more specifically to hell. Now hell is a topic that we don't like to talk about very much. We don't like to think about very much. Even in the American church today, we tend to tone down or ignore the concept of hell. I mean, it isn't a fun topic. It's not a fun topic, but it is an important one to think about, an important one to understand. So while this isn't a sermon on hell, I do want to speak about it briefly because it's in our texts today. Now listen, if you want to learn more about this idea of hell, is hell real, there's this great little book called Is Hell Real by Dane Ortland. So I'd love to give one to you. I've got 10 copies, so come see me after our gathering today. I'd love to give you one of these. It'll be in our follow-up email after service today as well. The word translated hell here in the original language is the word Gehenna. And it was a reference to a, a place outside of the city of Jerusalem that was a trash heap. And they would often burn the trash here. It was on the southwest corner of Jerusalem. They would burn it. And so there was this constant fire and smoldering reality of this place. And even to get a little more graphic, if uh, if someone passed away or died and no one claimed the body, bodies often would be dumped there as well. And that place was often used as a metaphor for the place of judgment before God. It's a metaphor for the place of judgment, but it isn't a metaphorical place. Now, what we see here in other places in Scripture is that hell is a real place. It's an eternal place, and it's a terrifying place. The language of hell is a place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now, whether there are actual flames in hell or not, that's not really the main point. The main point of what Jesus is trying to help us see here is that this place is awful. So what then is the purpose of it? What hell shows us is, is that God is a God of justice. That sin really is serious and it really will be dealt with. Either through his wrath or through Christ. God indeed rights all wrongs. 
Sometimes, though, I think even in the church and certainly in the wider culture, we can think of heaven, that's a place for good people. Hell, that's a place for bad people. So as long as my good outweighs my bad, or as long as I'm better than that guy, then I should be okay. But that's not the reality of what heaven and hell is. Heaven isn't a place for good people and hell a a place for bad people. Entrance into either isn't based on the amount of good versus the amount of bad. No, heaven is a place for those who by grace have repented of their sin who recognize how bad they actually are and how much they desperately need to be rescued from their rebellion as they place their trust in Jesus. Hell is for those who haven't done that, but continue to reject God and continue to live for self. Now, you may be thinking, okay, maybe it's a real place, but never ending, eternal. Like, what's, what's that? Isn't that a bit much? Well, this is where we have to understand the level of offense When you and I rebel against God, what we're effectively saying is we want God dead. We want to take his place. We want to rule our own lives. We want to be independent, self-sufficient, self-exalting. And that is cosmic treason. Cosmic treason that's so significant that it will take an eternity to bear the consequences of it. That's how big God is. And that's how much our rebellion against him really is worth or what has to be paid for for it. Now, for the most part, though, no one thinks they deserve hell. But that's usually because our point of justification of our life comes by way of horizontal comparison. So I look at someone else and I can think, definitely better than him, not as bad as her. I think, again, I'm okay. But what happens when we compare ourselves vertically to God? When we think about God and his perfection, when we think about God and his holiness, who God actually is, If we actually do that, what we realize and recognize is that we all fall short. We're nowhere close to that level of holiness or righteousness or perfection. And so it's not a fun topic to talk about, but we don't need to tone down the reality of hell in order to continue to hold on to the love of God. Sometimes those things are pitted against one another, but they're not mutually exclusive. It's actually God's righteous wrath that helps us understand how lavish his love is, how big his love is. Because the reality is you and I all deserve hell. But God made a way for you to be rescued out of it. That's love. A love like nothing else you can experience in this world. He sent his son to take the punishment for your sin to save you from not going to that place. None of us deserve his redeeming love and his rescuing grace, but he gives it to us in Christ. At the end of the day, heaven and hell are about who you say Jesus is and what you do with that. So listen, hell is real and it's a terrifying place. And I don't want anyone to go there. And so I hope even as a follower of Christ that you would be motivated even to think about that reality. Even if you've already trusted Christ to think about the people around you who haven't. It would motivate you, it would compel you to go tell them about Jesus, the only one who gives life, the only one who allows them to stand before God in all eternity and be with him forever instead of separated from him forever. And if you're not yet a follower of Christ, I don't want you to go there either. I want you to experience God's grace. I want you to come to Jesus, though, not because you're scared of hell, but because you actually see who Jesus is. 
and believe he is the son of God who died for you, that you believe that Jesus and his ways really are better. And this brings us back to our text, back to the way of the king. So we have to understand something about ourselves. Rebellion in our life is easy. It's hardwired into our operating system as a human being. Right? It just comes naturally, out of the box. Here we go. Right? It's a lot easier. We see this in kids from a young age. They learn to say no before they learn to say yes. Obedience, though, is hard. Following Jesus and submitting our life to him, our entire life is hard. But Jesus wants us to see that it's worth it because it always leads to life. And so he's saying, so, or so is he saying, should we actually then, if in the pursuit of holiness, the pursuit of following Christ, should we actually mutilate ourselves? Right? We're not handing out machetes. Don't worry at the end of service today. No, again, he's speaking hyperbolically here to make a point. See, the reality is sin is serious, but it's also deceiving. It tricks you to think that you can have your cake and eat it too. But listen, if you keep compromising on the ways of the king, if you keep compromising, what you'll find is your heart will be hardened, your conscience seared, and you'll drift further and further away from the good ways of God. So then, it's better, Jesus is saying, to repent. It's better to turn away from sin and to Jesus than to keep compromising and to be thrown into hell for eternal judgment. Jesus' point is that following him and his good ways is better no matter the cost in this life. So he's using this extreme language to help. It doesn't even, it would be better for you to miss part of your body. That's how serious this is than to keep compromising. Man, it's difficult, especially when the cost is high. I see this in my own life. It's difficult to think about what does it look like for me to be disciplined in my life rather than compromise. So what does it look like to cut off things in your life? It means just that. It means to be disciplined. It means sometimes having to say no to certain things so that you can say yes to Christ. It means being honest about your life and asking for help for other brothers and sisters where you feel tempted to wander away from Christ. It means maybe removing yourself or other things in your life from your life so that you're not tempted to compromise. Putting your phone away, computer away, not going to that certain place or spending time with certain groups of people because you know, you know that's pulling you to drift away from Jesus. It could be a lot of other things. But listen, it isn't just about your outward actions. It's also about your pursuit of Christ. Setting your attention not on the things of this world, but setting your attention, your affection on Jesus. And as you do, what you'll find is Jesus will begin to transform your heart and your desires. You'll love Jesus and his ways more than what the world offers to you. Romans chapter 13, verse 14 has been a help for me in regard to this over the years, because I think it captures what Jesus is saying here, the way of the king. Romans 13, 14 says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Be disciplined. Don't gratify. Don't don't make provision for your flesh. But it's not just that. It's also put on Christ. Look to Jesus. Rest in Jesus. Find your identity in Jesus. And as you set your gaze on him and also make no provision for the flesh, that's the way you can stay on the narrow road that leads to life. Now, I don't always do this. I oftentimes think, flesh sounds better today than Jesus. But I can tell you that when I do this, it's always for my good. I never regret it. 
and you'll never regret it either. Make no provision for your flesh. Don't compromise. Be disciplined and set your gaze on Christ. Brothers and sisters, don't just drift along in the Christian life. Don't just drift away from Jesus. Don't compromise. Be disciplined. Be alert. Be on guard. And let's help one another with that. Let's encourage one another along the way and strive to enter the rest of God, not in our own power, our own strength, our own ability, but by the grace of God and the gospel. Now, these last few verses in this section may seem a little bit out of place here, but I think the last line in verse 50 really links all of what Jesus has said together. He says, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, we are the salt of the earth. In other words, we are meant to be useful and impactful in the world we live in. And following Jesus has never been about circling up the wagons. Now, he's called us to live in this world, just not of this world. So then we have to seek to remain salty by seeking to walk in the way of the king and his kingdom. And he shows us that, what that is through his word. He shows us what that is through his people. So look to him there. Look to him in the midst of his people. His word, his truth that we have in there is a lamp to your feet and a light to your path. When you live for Jesus, it will go better for you. Not easier. Not without struggles, not without sufferings, not without doubts and difficulties like we talked about last week, but you will be on the ancient way, the ancient way that leads to life. All of this reminds us of our deep and ongoing need for Jesus and his grace. Titus chapter 2 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Do you see what he's saying there? He says, it's always by grace. It's always by Jesus. He came to save you, but now he helps you. The same grace that saved you is the same grace that will sanctify you and make you more like Christ. We never move on from the gospel. We never move on from Jesus. So please don't hear any of this as saying, hey, just go do better. Try harder. No, keep repenting, keep believing the gospel, keep fixing your eyes on Jesus. And again, if you don't know him, I'm glad you're here today, but place your faith in Jesus. Don't keep trying to do it on your own. Turn away from the world and self and turn to Jesus. Church, the way of the king is one of humility, not pride. It's one of charity, not criticism. One of discipline, not compromise. So friends, together, let's follow after him for all of our days. It will be for your good, and it will be for your joy. Amen.